Misfit Toys. Welcome to episode 621 with my guest Liz E. I am Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, a place for, uh, for honesty about all the bullshit rattling around in our skulls. Uh, it is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. Uh, I'm not a therapist, uh, but I am a little nutty. And, uh, <laughs> I hope that counts for something. I wanted to read this email that I got, uh, you know, we talked about psych ward experiences an episode or two back, and a lot of them were really shitty, where people felt really, really alone. Um, and I got this from a listener uh, called Jamie, and she writes, uh, I wanted to reach out because I recently started a chaplaincy internship at a major hospital. First off, I know the word chaplain has immediate connotations of Ju- Judeo-Christianity, but every last staff, chaplain, and intern, even the Catholic priests, are full-heartedly interfaith. Chaplains are there for spiritual care of any kind, including simply being a listening ear. I find it a bummer that that isn't made more clear to people from the outset, given how stressful it is for patients and family alike to find themselves in a hospital. So to all your listeners, your hospital's spiritual care team is 100% down with whatever it is you're coming from and work long hours with crappy pay for the sole purpose of being there for you. I found it extraordinary myself how, when working with a patient, the rest of the world disappears. In that moment, you really are all that matters. Which leads me to the main point I wanted to reach out about. Your show has been one of the most significant influences for me, not only in my own personal struggle with the deluxe package of my own mental health issues, but also in my ministry. In my years of listening, I've heard survey after survey from people with terrible psych ward experiences, especially concerning burned out staff, making them feel all the more alone. And I wanted to let the listeners know, if you're feeling unseen and unheard in the psych ward by anyone, from staff to nurses to doctors, and this is in caps, you can call for a chaplain. 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Our job is love. That's it. Zero religious agenda. Patients in deep depression, all-out psychosis, everyone, we are here for you to listen, love, advocate. In the meantime, thank you, Paul, for all the listening and loving you provide through your show. I, for one, don't know where I'd be without it. And with the utmost love and appreciation, go fuck yourself. I appreciate that. And the one thing that uh, that touches me deeply is uh, people tell me to go fuck myself. Um, I don't know where I'd be without that. I don't think anything has helped me grow as much as a... Uh, so nice, go fuck yourself at the end of an email. Those of you that are new, that's a little uh, little inside joke we have here. Um, the Mental Illness Happy Hour is sponsored by BetterHelp Online Therapy. I have a great therapist. Her name is Heidi. She's a great listener, and she's very wise. So if you have never tried online therapy, give it a shot. As the world's largest therapy service, BetterHelp has matched 3 million people with professionally licensed and vetted therapists available 100% online. Plus, it's affordable. Think of it as a, uh, a trip to the, to the auto shop to, uh, to tune up your engine. You know, uh, we don't, our brain doesn't come with a, an owner's manual, and I think therapy is the, the closest thing that we can get to it. So just fill out a brief questionnaire to match with the therapist. If things aren't clicking, you can easily switch to a new therapist anytime. It couldn't be simpler. No waiting rooms, no traffic, no endless searching for the right therapist. Learn more and save 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com mental. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash mental and uh, make sure you include the slash metal part so they know uh, that you came from the podcast and that would be awesome if you did that and then um this is the only survey we're going to read for this episode uh and this is an awful moment uh from from way back but i think it's worth reading again uh, and this is filled out by a woman who calls herself just a mess she writes I had ordered two bikes for my fiancé and I as Christmas presents on Black Friday. 
When I ordered them, I didn't realize I had to pick them up by the following Tuesday or the 50% discount would no longer apply. So, Tuesday evening, after receiving a warning email, I drove to the store with my car, thinking I could fit it. I could fit them in the back of my car after putting down the back seats. After waiting for 30 minutes to be helped, a worker brought down the two bikes and I immediately realized there was no way they would fit in my car. I asked if they had a bike rack I could purchase. The clerk showed me one that was way more than I wanted to spend, and I asked if it was easy to install. He said it was. I brought the rack outside in the dark and rain to try and install it on my car. The pictures made no sense to me, and I couldn't figure it out. The papers began flying all over the parking lot, and I had to chase down the box the rack came in. Feeling frustrated, I went inside the car to warm up. I looked down and had not only gotten my period, but bled but bled through my leggings. Feeling defeated, I went to go inside and tell the workers I wouldn't be able to bring the bikes home that day. I'd been at the store for over two hours, and I knew that my fiancé would be, be wondering where I was. While waiting in line, I got a text from my fiancé saying, How soon until you're home? I clicked on it to respond, but then the clerk was ready to talk to me. He seemed to be looking down when I realized that my fiancé had not only sent a text message, but a dick pic that was now taking up most of the phone screen. I awkwardly shoved the phone in my pocket and explained to the worker there was no way I could install the rack. He then said he could probably help me out. In his shorts and t-shirt, he went back outside and helped me for a half hour installing this rack and getting the bikes on it. I was so grateful for him. He restored my faith in humanity. And my fiancé, he better like those goddamn bikes. Your fear of death is your love of life in reverse i'm a kinky person i didn't want to be i'm I'm ashamed a sexual being deeply ashamed you are i want to live fucking depressed but how i can't do this anymore i will be uncomfortable so you will be comfortable is life just a series of perpetual losses you're not depressed we're black there is no real chance for intimacy we don't do that without risking being hurt push it all down you can't go around it Ireland, like we don't do mental health talk through is the only path no one is ever alone there's somebody else out there don't forget experiencing the same thing as you that the places you feel most broken now you just gotta look for them will one day be your greatest strength and when you find them it's a great feeling and i'm suddenly feeling horrible about <laughs> making that joke but that's how far i will go to get a laugh because i am empty inside you're in the right place. I am here with my buddy Liz E, who uh, I've known for what eight years, ten years, all well, ten years. Yeah, yeah. And uh, we've seen each other go through a lot. And one of the reasons uh, you've been on my to-do list of people from our support group that I've wanted to to, to have on because I've always enjoyed talking to you. I've always enjoyed your shares. You're, you're somebody that um, uh, isn't afraid to dig out the truth, even if it's ugly. Um, and you went through a period of depression recently that kind of took you by surprise. Can you talk about that? I did. In fact, it's so recent that it still chokes me up because of how hard it was. And first of all, thank you for having me. You're so um, welcome. I... You've always been such a safe person for me. I think you were one of my first male friends um, in our support group. So, yeah, I, um, you know, I've struggled for a long time, actually, with depression. It probably started all the way back when I was maybe 16 or 17 years old. And recently, I would say it was in August, I had a complete breakdown and it was the worst your depression has ever been? Ever. Wow. Yeah, ever. And was it driven by a particular event? I I think I was in denial for a long time. I felt it coming on for about a year. Did actually. the wrong person get chose on The Bachelor? More like I was put on the wrong medication. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah, there's a whole medication aspect to it, too. 
Um, and and what I assume that your shrink was tweaking your meds because you weren't feeling ideal. Correct. Okay. I was and, actually told about six years ago that most likely I was on the wrong medication. That's but always nice because to hear. I had mm-hmm. so much anxiety around it. I was afraid to do anything about it. Mm-hmm. And so I just kept pushing myself like, I can do this. I can do this. I can do this. And there came a point when I couldn't do it anymore. What, uh, not that it matters because everybody reacts differently to different meds, mm-hmm. but just out of curiosity, mm-hmm. what was the one that got added? That uh, The one that's, so I'm titrating off of one and mm-hmm. onto another. What are you titrating off of? So I'm coming off of Lexapro, mm-hmm. which was incredible in the beginning. It helped really well. Um, kind of get me out of my first bout. Um, and then it just kind of stopped working for me. So now uh, they added in Cymbalta. Mm-hmm. So I had a doctor actually run a blood test to see what would work best for me. And that was the one that would work best, better than Lexapro. Really? Yeah. So in a way, it made me feel less anxious because yeah. I was like, oh, my body is going to say, like, this is okay. Right. right. So I was tr- trying to trust the science a little bit more. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so I am adding in Cymbalta, and because every dosage takes four to six weeks to adjust to, it's been a really long process. So I started back on August 16th was when I added in the Cymbalta. And we're talking right now in the middle of November. Yeah. So it's been three months of slowly coming out of a very dark hole. So it's not that the Cymbalta is not working. It's just taken a while to to kick in. And yeah. and so right now you don't have any med really working for you because you're titrating off the other one. Yeah, I mean, I'd like to think that the Cymbalta's at a pretty good place because I do feel a lot better than I did three months ago. Um, but I still have the rest, of, the rest of the Lexapro to get out of my system. And then once that's out, I kind of have to wait and see how I feel. Mm-hmm. And if I don't do well, then I might have to add in more Cymbalta. Have you been getting the brain zaps? Yes. Talk about those. Oh my gosh. I had a psychiatrist. This is part of why I find it so hard to get really good mental health care is because there's psychiatrists out there. I had one where I said, I'm having brain zaps. And this was even with Lexapro. I wasn't missing a dose. Mm -hmm. I would take my Lexapro every day, same time every day. And I would go in there and say, I'm having brain zaps. And she looked at me and goes, what are those? You've got to be kidding me. (laughs) No. Not kidding you. And it was like, Scoot up that's, it made me lose faith in psychiatry. You know, if yes. I can't trust you to even know these symptoms, how can I trust you to medicate me properly? Right? Yeah. So again, it was like, let me stop talking to her. And again, I'm just going to go back out on my own and do everything I can think I'm, of doing to make myself feel better. But I'm actually struggling. And denying it. That is a bad place to be. Yeah. That is a bad place to be. Yeah. And so now every time I go down on my Lexapro, I get the brain zaps, of course, which are Mm. these electric pulses in my brain that seem to be um, triggered by like rapid eye movement. So if you... Oh, really? So if if I'm looking straight and I happen to look to the side of the room with just my eyes, I get like this feeling inside my brain. It's very bizarre. It's very uncomfortable. It, it's not. Yeah, I've painful. had. I've had them. Yeah. Yeah. I've never connected it to the to the eye movement. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's uh, it's a it's a shitty feeling. Um, it is. But you know, the, the positive, and you know, forgive me if I'm being, you know, a Pollyanna. I always try to find the positive and and things if possible. Is it reminds you that your meds are helping you? Right. The, you know, once the brain, once you, the depression begins to come back, brain zaps aside, it's a, it's a reminder to me that, oh, I need these. Mm-hmm. I need these yeah. pills until something better comes along because I'm certainly no fan of big pharma as I'm sure you're yeah. not either. No. But um, the, I think the curse of the medic- medicated is we always, when we start feeling good is we begin to think, I don't need them. I feel great. (laughs) I actually know people that stop taking them because they start to feel better. And then I watch them slowly decline. And I'm like, stop doing that to yourself. It's a pattern. I've watched people do it over and over and over again. You're feeling better because the meds are working. Don't you want to keep feeling better? 
I do. I don't want to go back to that hell. It was awful. I almost didn't make it. What describe the the depths of it? <sighs> what what your brain was telling you? What you were feeling? How you viewed yourself, the world? So I think over the course of about the last year, maybe a year and a half, I was kind of. I, I was noticing that I wasn't as interested in doing the things that I used to do, that my life wasn't as full anymore, mm-hmm. that I wasn't spending as much time with my friends, that I was starting to get anxious going to certain places. I didn't want to go to the grocery store. So what, did the, was, what did the anxiety feel like? It Was it just a thought or was it in your body as well? Both. Why, how would you experience it in your body? It started, I started to get triggered at, this might sound crazy, red lights. So there's really big intersection close to my house. Mm. And when I would get in heavy morning traffic and I'd be stuck at a red light surrounded by cars, I would feel very lightheaded and shaky. My knees would get weak. And then I had, my thoughts were, you're going crazy. You're going to pass out. How embarrassing get out like it was just it was sheer panic of i need to get out of my car and was it like because of a feeling of claustrophobia yeah i I, i've actually had a few situations in my past where i have been stuck like physically stuck in some scary situations so i think i have this underlying fear now of not being able to get out so it's triggered sometimes i get triggered when i'm getting my hair done when i'm getting my nails done because i'm powerless right my hands are that's so interesting. My hands and feet are like I can't just get up and walk out. I need to be You're able trapped. to always get out. Yes. In your previous life, childhood, mm-hmm. are there any traumatic events where it involved you feeling trapped? I've had a pretty wild, <laughs> um, I'd say, adolescence, especially adolescence, where I've been in scary situations or around scary people. And I've been in, like, there was a club where there was a shooting and everyone ran out at the same time and there was, like, a stampede at the door and I got trampled at the door. Oh, yeah. And <laughs> I had to have, like, a security guard, like, grab me by the shoulders and pick me up. And You think that's what that factored into? <laughs> no. Doesn't that happen to everybody? Oh, my God. I'm so sorry. You experienced that. And, and uh, you know, I'm... I'm I, I apologize if it if it uh, sounds like I'm trying to uh, you know say well this is this and this came from that. It's more my curiosity no, that that okay. I'm that I'm asking these questions no. rather than. You know, I have the same curiosity. Trust yeah. me, these are things I've been trying to figure out for years and years and years where stuff comes from. Mm-hmm. You know, because I feel like if I can find that answer, then it's like oh, I'm cured, figured it out. You know, and that's not always – sometimes, yes, it helps, but that's not always how it works, you know, but it is nice to know. So, um, so you're uh, experiencing panic? Yes. Uh, in different places? Yes. Uh, any suicidal ideation? Yeah. So then I feel like back in December, um, I have a lot of um, toxicity in my family, my immediate family. And it got to a place where it was weighing so heavily on me emotionally that I had to draw really hard boundaries with my family, which meant spending less time with them. And I'm very close to my mom, but my mom is very codependent on my dad. So I don't get a lot of my mom when I need her. Um, And so... And has that kind of always been the case? Yes. Yes. Um, My family dynamic is... My mom is codependent with my dad. My dad is codependent with my mom. My dad's an addict, and my dad is also addicted to my brother, who is also an addict. So the three of them, it's like this little toxic world, Mm -hmm. and I only fit into it if someone's sober that day or if I ask in advance to spend time with my mom. You know, things like that. and So there's kind of a a dysfunctional currency that wins you. 100%. Attention, mm-hmm. accolades, mm-hmm. or just avoiding someone's wrath. Mm-hmm. Talk, talk about those. Yeah, it's <sighs> give me, I give think... me some snapshots of uh, interactions with your family, whether they involve you or not. That can kind of paint a picture for me yeah. and the and the listener. I think so. My dad's an alcoholic. 
He's still still to this day. I mean, actively drinking, actively drinking. Yes. Actively drinking to this day. My brother is an addict, alcoholic and uh, pills and Mm -hmm. other things. He just finished 30 days in rehab. Uh, This is the longest he's been sober in probably 20 years. That's hopeful. So, yeah, you know, fingers crossed. We actually might get a same Thanksgiving this year, but I don't know. (laughs) Um, Let's just bring up politics. That usually smooths (laughs) things out. (laughs) Oh, gosh, no. (laughs) Um, Because they don't have the recovery to be able to know when to not talk about things. Yeah. And then my mom is more of the kind of Al-Anon, kind of untreated Al-Anon. She's recently started Al-Anon, though, and is working Mm -hmm. the steps finally, which is incredible. So my mom is very, very religious. Very, She was raised as, she raised me the same way she was raised. And these are her words. I'm not, you know, making Mm -hmm. this up for her. Where children are to be seen and not heard. So it was do as you say, do as I say. Uh, you don't have a voice. You must behave or you will be punished. Where was she raised and what was the religion? She was raised Catholic originally, and then they converted to Christianity. Just kind of general yeah, yeah. Christianity. But like very Christian, like church twice a week, read the Bible every day. Um, it was very ingrained in me where, you know, God's always watching me and I have to behave and I have to be good or I'm going to go to hell. Or So it's a punishing, the idea of a punishing, punishing God. That can be yes. so difficult when you get into support groups and if you're introduced the idea of a higher power or two. Yeah, yeah. because know. unfortunately, because things would happen in my life where I would feel responsible for something happening, thinking, oh my gosh, now I'm going to be punished by God. And it was something that I had no control over, that I don't feel that God, my God now, is a punishing God. God is not human. God doesn't have characteristics like this, right? He's not going to, you know, harm someone else to punish me, right? for example. You know, so it, I really had to work really hard to change my concept of what God was or God is for me. So going back to the... To- the depression, mm-hmm. uh, if you're comfortable talking about suicidal ideation, when did that creep in? What did that look like? Yeah. So, and, and what generally kind of was the conversation in your head? Because mm-hmm. I, I imagine the recovered part of you didn't disappear, but it was up against a pretty vicious enemy. I get choked up even now. If I cry, I apologize in advance. Um, it was like I was watching myself become less and less and less myself. Where I was saying before, my world was getting smaller and smaller and smaller. And I was spending more time sleeping on the weekends. And I was spending more time on the couch watching TV. And I kept thinking, oh, I'm just tired. Oh, I kept making all these excuses. And I was even working with a therapist at the time. And all I kept talking about was, oh, I'm stressed out because someone triggered me at work. There was always an excuse for it, always a reason for it. And then one day in August, um, I woke up and I didn't feel right. Something just felt off. I was having a little bit of anxiety and, and... And at that point, how long had you been tapering off of Lexapro? I hadn't started yet. Oh, so this led to the decision this that I need to, to change something up. Yeah. Okay. This led to the decision. This scared me enough to finally gotcha. make a change. So that morning when I woke up, I felt so off. So I called out of work. Um, I took the day off. And I said, maybe I just need to rest. And I rested. And that feeling didn't go away. Yeah. And Liz has a job that she loves. Yes, I do. I'm very well respected and highly regarded. It's and a dream job. It is. I'm, I'm very blessed right now with what I do and who I work for. And I they don't really know anything about my past. And it's like this mm-hmm. nice clean slate. And I called my HR manager and I burst into tears. And I told her, I don't know what's going on. 
I don't feel well and I need some, some, a couple days at home. There's a million reasons why I love where I work because they do have so many resources and they fully support, I mean, you name it, diversity. I mean, we're so big on diversity and inclusion and women and health and there's so much support. And I just knew that this one particular person in our HR department would receive what I was going to say. Um, because it's not something that I was comfortable talking about. I have my own stigma around it, which is crazy, you know. Um, it's funny. I think a lot of us have a double standard. Yeah, We're okay with other people totally. looking like they don't have it together. But yeah. when it comes to us, it's like, no, I don't want to inconvenience yeah. anybody or look weak or right. weird. Or- and that's exactly it. It made me feel so weak. It was – I felt so weak. Like, how could this happen? How could I let this happen again? I was blaming myself. Do you remember what the HR person said? She said to me, take the time you need. If you want to work or not, if you want to work, you can work from home. I won't tell anyone else what's going on with you. You have my full confidence. Let me know what you need and how I can support you. What'd that feel like? (sighs) Pretty incredible because I don't think I've ever had that at another job before. Have you ever had that at home? No, because I've pretty much been doing life on my own since I was 18 and out of the house. So all the big things I've gone through, I've gone through them alone. I'm single. I've never been married. Um, I have two kids. Um, So it's always been just me taking care of myself. And even with this recent bout, I was alone. I had to go through it alone. Talk about that. It was awful. I needed people with me because I didn't feel safe being alone. The feelings of depression were getting more and more intense. That I no longer trusted myself to keep myself safe. I didn't necessarily want to hurt myself because of the work I have done, the recovery I do have, the love I have for myself and my life now, but I didn't trust that I would be able to stop the thought if it became too strong. I no longer felt like I controlled my body and my thoughts. It's also scary too, because you don't know if you've hit the bottom of yeah. your depression yet. Yeah. And I think it was, I was standing on my balcony, just getting some air. And I remember thinking, what if I just jump over? I'm on the second floor. And that became my kind of obsessive thought of this is how I get myself out of this. And I remember reaching out to my mom and telling my mom and saying, it's not that I want to, but I don't know if I'll be able to stop myself because I'm that sad and I'm that miserable. And there's this heavy weighted blanket on my brain and I can't think straight and I can't see straight. I couldn't even drive because I couldn't see straight. Wow. Wow. Yeah. I couldn't drive. So you couldn't even run people over no. to get your anger out. <laughs> no. That is a sad I place know. to be. I know. No more, you know, no points. I couldn't collect any points on the street. I know. I I had no idea the depth of it. You know, when yeah. you shared in our meetings that you were going through some depression, yeah. um, you also um, gave off a little bit of a vibe that you wanted people at arm's Lengths. It's like you you wanted to strike that balance between letting people know what was going on, but afraid of being pitied or um, I'm not sure what what fear was was going on, if any, in your brain when you did open up to us. Well, it's it's interesting because like we talked about the stigma, right? I had so much shame 
around it because I was afraid of what people were going to think of me. Even in our support group. Even in our support group. Because here's the thing. We share <laughs> the most fucked up, I know. embarrassing I things. I know. I could tell you some of the most scandalous things I've done and not bat an eye. But when it comes to this, this is what happens. I come into a, a room or a meeting to one of our support groups and I'll canvas the room and because I, I do struggle with, you know, relationships and intimacy and stuff like that, I'll go, oh, that guy's kind of cute. I can't share about myself because he might not like me anymore. Got to keep the image up. I have to keep the image up. Even though he could be married, he could be gay, he could be like, mm-hmm. n- even if he's straight, he might not be interested in me because people are allowed to not be interested in me. But if there was that 1% chance that he might be, I couldn't let him know what was going on with me, which is so stupid because if someone is interested in me, they're going to have to find this stuff out anyway. It's, it's like in the moment, <laughs> but it's like, we don't think I have it to trap him first. <laughs> 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 and then I show the ugly stuff. Come on. That's how we do it. Let me get you. Let me get you my web first. <laughs> Well, let's well, let's segue into that. Let's <laughs> let's talk about the the history yeah. of feeling um, battling your self in yeah. in finding intimacy. Yeah. When when did that start? Gosh. Probably when I was five. And, and <clears throat> my what? earliest memories would have been. I remember becoming very infatuated with the male female relationship i think because so much of it was hidden from me by my parents and i was also getting very mixed messages from my parents at the time my mom was more like follow the bible right and the bible will lead you and god will lead you to your person and all these big ideas and my dad was more of a worldly um not as religious as your mom not as religious and also he would have like a Playboy magazine on his nightstand and my mom would have a Bible on her nightstand. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I'm the product of that. That, <laughs> that is going in the opening montage <laughs> for next year. Um, so I'm the product of that yeah. where it's – That's all you need to say. That's all I need We're to say. We're going to wrap yeah. up. Yeah. That explains that's everything. Me. My dad would encourage me to use my sexuality to get what I wanted and would then he, my mom would tell me that I would be punished. Wow. Yes. He would tell me, literally, if my car was at the mechanic, he would say, we'll show some cleavage and maybe you can get a discount. Oh, my God. Dirty jokes. I mean, it was it's disgusting. To this day, I'm disgusted by my dad. Have you ever felt um, a creepy vibe towards oh. you from Ooh. him? Ooh. I guess Does that, that answer your yes. question? Yes. If you're comfortable, obviously you're not, but I'm going to ask you anyway. <laughs> if you wouldn't you mind talking more about the difficult to talk about. Yeah. Um, and if you're not comfortable, totally get it. But you and I have spoken many times about this, yeah, and which is why I'm... There's no secrets here. All right. There's no secrets here. Um, there's actually a lot that I that I don't know. I think I've... Actually, I know I've blocked a lot of stuff out because I've learned so well how to trust my body. I'm so in touch with my body that when there's something going on around me that doesn't feel right, I can feel it right away. Is that a new thing or has that always been that way? It's been that way for at least the last six or seven years since I started doing some of this recovery work. Yeah. Um, And what a gift that is to begin have your body be your friend. Yeah. I mean, what a novel concept. I, I know. Like, wow, I can trust my gut. Who knew? But my relationship with my dad was always based on accomplishments. Mm-hmm. You know, if I, I played sports so that he would come and coach my games. And I tried to do well in school so that he would say, good job. Um, and then, of course, if I didn't do well, he punished me. He spanked me. Um, there's probably been, there's been stories me and my sister have tried to kind of pick apart where she feels at one point he may have touched her inappropriately. Mm. Um, and 
There was probably not a whole lot of healthy boundaries. I feel like he definitely crossed some sexual boundaries when we were younger, um, probably showering together until we were like a little too old to shower together, things of that nature. Yeah. So to this day, I have trouble looking at him in the eye. Oh my gosh, I just realized. Sometimes when I am come across a man who I find attractive, I have trouble making eye contact. I don't know. That just hit me really well. Wow. Yeah. It's like, when, a, look away, shy away. One of the things that really helped me in recovery to be able to um, describe accurately the the feeling I get around my mom um, is that she drinks me in mm-hmm. with her eyes. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think a lot of people experience that from a parent, whether that parent is well-meaning or not, but it's a creepy thing to experience, yeah. the the weight and the invasion of that, that kind of look. Yeah. And I think it's important to talk about the things that aren't criminal, but fuck us up. Right. And, and that's, I think, where so much of the work um, can be done is, mm. you know, turn into a parent and saying, why did you just wolf whistle yeah. at your daughter? Yeah. That's not cool. Yeah. And even recently, he would, he tries to tell us jokes that he should probably only share with other men his age. <laughs> yeah. And he tells them to me, my sister, and I look at him and I'm like, can you please not? That's disgusting. That's totally inappropriate. And how would he, you're how old, Liz? 44. You're 44. And it hasn't sunk in what your taste in jokes is. No. By this point, no. which tells me that your dad's kind of a narcissistic guy. Oh, 100%. Which, is a bit redundant when you're talking about an untreated alcoholic, Mm -hmm. but yeah. Yeah. I, to this day, I don't, I don't want to be alone with him. I don't want to engage in conversation with him. I no, no, thank you. Have you ever gone through a period of sadness that that's the dad you got? Yes. Talk about that. Yeah. I, sometimes I watch movies where you see a relationship between a father and a daughter and she's like daddy's girl and they're really close and they're doing things together. And he recognizes what she loves. Yes. And he fully supports her or, you know, she's off getting married and he's crying while she's walking down the aisle, just anything like that. And I get so sad thinking I'm never going to have that. I've never had that. I'm never going to have that. And I feel like I got cheated out of that experience, you know? It's, I think part of that is why I also crave to find relationships, particularly if I could find someone that has a really large family. Like I want to be part of someone else's family. Mm. I want to be like adopted into someone else's family, whether it's through a romantic relationship or platonic relationship. Like, can I go adopt some grandparents somewhere? Like I'm craving that wholesome family environment, especially from my dad, because if I didn't get that from him, I was never taught from him what a healthy relationship looks like. I was never taught from him what it feels like to be valued and respected by a man. I have nothing to, to gauge, right? Like there's, I go out into the world and I try to date and I'm like, I don't know how I'm supposed to be treated because no one ever showed me that. In fact, I was showed the opposite. I was showed to use my body. And that's how I connected with men was by using my body. And then, of course, I expected the love to follow that, and it never does. This episode is sponsored by Fisher Wallace Labs. The brain is an electrical system, so Fisher Wallace developed a wearable brain stimulation device that is cleared by the FDA to treat depression, anxiety, and insomnia. It's been proven safe and effective in multiple clinical trials and is prescribed by over 14,000 doctors and providers. The majority of patients experience relief within two weeks without side effects. If you're already taking medication, it's safe to use in combination. Not every mental health treatment works for everyone, which is why Fisher Wallace has a 100% satisfaction guarantee. Try it for up to 30 days and return it for a full refund if it's not a game changer. 
Go to fisherwallace.com slash happy hour and use the coupon code mental to save 10% on a purchase today. That's fisherwallace.com slash happy hour promo code mental. And so when did you kind of hit bottom with that? Are there any snapshots um, of moments where you were like, uh, I, I need help? About 11 years ago, I was breaking up my second engagement. Um, we were planning our wedding and I started having uncontrollable panic attacks. And so I found a therapist thinking, I just have cold feet. It's something in the relationship that's off. Help me fix my relationship. And the more she and I started talking, I realized it was so much bigger than that, that it wasn't the relationship. It was, it was me. Um, I was engaged in getting married to someone that I didn't really love. I didn't really respect. He wasn't very nice to me. And I was in it because part of my dis-ease is finding people to fall in love with me, to, again, the get, like, get them. And then once I got them, it was like, <gasps> what did I do? I'm trapped with this I'm person. trapped with this person. Would there be a fantasy about who this person was in the beginning? What were the typical fantasies that you had about who this person was and could be to you? And what would that bring to you, what this person had to, to offer? I think part of it was ego that... I have someone that loves me so much he wants to marry me, which also fed my self-esteem and my self-worth. So it fed all of those things that I didn't have. So it was time. about you yeah. more than that person. Oh, 100%. They were probably good looking, probably loved bombed me in the beginning, complete, like – so much attention and gifts and love. Oh, and fucking I want run. You fucking like, run. <laughs> but an untreated person, right, sees that and is like, give me more, you know? And this is going to last forever. Yeah. Prince Charming. I wanted Prince Charming. My fantasy was Prince Charming. My fantasy was, I'm Cinderella. Come and rescue me from my life. Let's get married and go right off into the sunset together. I wanted a big wedding because I wanted the wedding, not the other the stuff. Life after. I didn't want the life. I wanted the wedding. I wanted the dress. I wanted the ring. And I wanted the bragging rights. That's what I wanted. What does it feel like when you say that out loud? <laughs> I can kind of laugh at it now mm -hmm. because I've done so much work and I'm so detached from it. And it's been obviously 11 years. Um, to, and I actually feel completely different now. Where now it's like... I don't want a big wedding. This isn't about other people. This is for me. This is intimate. This is my ideas have shifted so much that now I can look back at it and just be like, oh my gosh, I, it's, it was kind of sad. It's, it's a little sad to think, you know, this little girl, right? No matter how old I am, there's this little girl inside of me that wanted this big fairy tale, um, thinking that was going to solve all of my problems. And then, but now I can also add in the, wow, a lot has changed. I'm glad I'm not in that headspace right now. Mm -hmm. um, but I also know that I have to continuously do this work. I started to share more about my history with my relationships with men because it wasn't just this guy. There was a fiancé before him. And there was a guy before him and a guy before him. And I'm like, there's a pattern here. And I'm so sick of blaming them. All I kept saying was, another broken guy, another broken guy, another broken guy. And she looked at me and she goes, you know, you sound a lot like another one of my clients who belongs to some support groups. If it's okay with her, can I connect the two of you? And I'm, of course, absolutely. Mm -hmm. I'm in pain. I'm tired of this pattern. My family's so sick and tired of me at this point 
My sister rolls her eyes at me when I say, even talk about going on a date at this point. And I connected with this other client of hers and she shared her story with me and I related a hundred percent. And that's what led me to going to the same support groups that this other client was in. And that's when I started my self-discovery journey. And what were some of the things you were shocked to learn? I mean, you, you shared a few that it, it was a pattern. It wasn't uh, the coincidence of 12 guys in a row that were dicks. <laughs> yeah. There was also a pattern of not just 12 guys in a row, but 12 at the same time. <laughs> I had uh, to have a safety net at all times. I had to have because... Backup generator. Oh, for sure. Because if one didn't work out, I couldn't handle not having someone else there. I became so addicted to the attention and I think the high that I was getting from the attention that I almost like fell in love with intrigue. So like... It makes total sense. That... It's, it's a fucking drug. Oh my gosh. It's like... And I remember saying things like... If I could just have the first three months of a relationship for the rest of my life. It's like the first bite of pizza. I'd be set. Yeah. Yeah. The rest of the pizza is downhill, the right? the first bite of pizza for the rest of my life. Yes. I'm set. But then you don't get any of the deep stuff. It's, you know. And the so, deep stuff's the best stuff. I know. The, the, I know. But at the time, it just, I couldn't even see that far. Yeah. I it used was, to think people were lying that would say, you know, our relationship gets better as time goes on and I had, I had no idea what they were talking. Yeah. I thought that they were just trying to justify their fear of leaving each other. Yeah. And I... Yeah. I, I would get into the... You, know, you get past the intrigue, intrigue phase and then the other person's actually wanting more and so you agree to be, you know, whether it's boyfriend, girlfriend or whatever the, the situation is and then I would go, well, now what? What? <laughs> Now what do I do with him? Now what's going to get me high? <laughs> I know. Do I like what do I do with him? Do I just like feed him pizza oh. in the corner of the room and like say hi? I don't know. Like that's not my jam. My jam is get 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 more more more. The next one, the next. I had so much fear of missing out. I didn't want to miss. Oh, that guy's cuter than this guy. That guy's more um, talented than this guy. This guy's more you know a better profession. Uh, he's famous. He's so it got bigger and bigger and bigger. Um, that's, that's where I, I think I, I got, I like these words like stuck. I was just stuck in this world of intrigue for so many years. And that was one of the biggest patterns I saw coming in was that I was almost afraid to take that leap into the next phase of relationships because I had no idea who I was. I had no idea what relationships looked like. I had no idea, like I said, what to do in a relationship. And so it was better just to keep it friendly. I didn't want to get hurt. I didn't want to get hurt. One of the, the concepts that kind of blew my mind when I first started coming to our groups is that this support group is, is not a um, program of deprivation. It's a program to help us find healthy abundance that mm -hmm. comes in to that empty yeah. place so that we're not pining for something that's going to give us a, a sugar rush but leave us feeling depleted. Mm -hmm. Yeah. When did you begin to feel that something was – something healthy was starting to fill that hole in your soul, your chest? It was – I would say about two years into going to groups and working through some assignments that were given to me by other people that had been in the groups and writing out kind of like inventories for my life of relationships I had been in, looking at characteristics on paper, looking at behaviors on paper having to write about my dad, having to write all these things, and then having to write my part in all of these situations. And I think that it was then that I also was able to look at people as more than what I could get from them and more than 
the label I created for them and see that they're actually human beings underneath too. And they have feelings too. And that if I'm acting out because of something that I'm not getting in my life, most likely they are too. I developed compassion. And I think one of the biggest turning points was that happened with my dad. When I was writing, doing some writing about my dad, my dad came from, so when he was seven, his dad died and he was an only child and he became like the husband and the father in that household because it was just him and his mom. And then also my grandfather was adopted. And when he was adopted, the family that adopted him gave him their last name. So there was a piece of my dad that felt like he actually didn't really know where he came from because our gotcha. last name was adopted. So I think because my dad also felt this sense of being lost and not having a dad, and then he got into his own drinking, I was able to go, he's broken too. He's hurting too. He doesn't have any tools. He doesn't wake up every morning saying, how can I hurt my daughter today? He just didn't know what he was doing. He doesn't know what he's doing to this day. And that's what helped me start to turn a corner into seeing I can have compassion mm -hmm. for other people. The gift of occasionally having the conscious thought that somebody else is just scared mm -hmm. is one of the most valuable tools, mm -hmm. certainly for dealing with anger. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it's funny. It's like people always say, you know, I don't blame my parents. You know, they didn't know what they were doing or they did the best they could. And I'm like, yeah, well, they didn't do good enough. That, I think that can also be true. <laughs> they didn't do good enough. Yeah. They didn't know what they're doing, but they didn't really do anything to make it better either. Right. You know, having conversations with my mom today, she clearly knows. She, she, she wasn't one for talking about her feelings, obviously, because no one, she didn't teach me how to either. Like, it's no surprise there. She's finally letting me know little bits and pieces, and it's starting to really, I'm like, Oh my gosh, this makes so much sense now. So I'm glad to hear that you feel like you're coming slowly out of the, the depression. My eye color is lighter. You know, there was, I remember I woke up one morning and I looked in the mirror and I didn't recognize my face. Really? My eyes were dark. Was it because your pupils were enlarged? I don't know. It was too scary to investigate really like, I didn't want to get any closer to the mirror. Were you with a vampire? <laughs> Maybe I am the vampire. I don't know. <laughs> my, color's, my color does change. Um, the bags under my eyes. Um, people have told me that did see me during those couple of months. That, wow, you look so much better. Um, you look so much lighter. You know, your eye color is brighter. So you could see it on my face. You could see depression on my face. That's how low it was. And what's really cool is that, well, it's, it's cool and it kind of makes me sad too, is the little things that I noticed that showed me that I was coming through it. I was walking my dog and I noticed the neighbor had some really pretty roses and I was like, Oh wow, these are so pretty. And I smelled one of them wow. and I went, Oh my gosh, I just noticed a rose and I was interested in smelling it. And then I got sad because I was like, when was the last time I had any interest in even smelling a rose? I had forgotten all these little joys the fact that I love a sunset, the fact that I love the moon, the fact that I get joy out of seeing beautiful flowers on the side of the road, I couldn't even see them. They brought me nothing. People would tell jokes, and I, I remember I even said to them, don't waste your joke on me. I won't laugh. <laughs> I said that to my dad. I said, don't bother. I'm not going to laugh. He goes, why not? I go, I'm physically incapable of laughing. Sense of humor, there was nothing. It was, I was gone. I was gone. And noticing these things where I'm like, and I remember I would call people in, in our, in our program and say, oh my gosh, I saw a flower. Like I noticed a flower today. 
And those are the little things where I was like, I'm coming back, you know? And then I told a joke at work. And then I was like, oh, I told a joke. My sense of humor is coming back. Slowly, I'm coming back into this person. And it's really interesting because I was like, I think it was my daughter. I have, I have mm -hmm. daughters. My daughter was like, what's wrong with you tonight? And I was like, this is me. You just haven't seen her in a really long time. And then, of course, I got sad again, All right. realizing how long it's been since I've been myself, you know. Um, but I think better late than never. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm so glad that I was in the space that I'm in today where I do have a support group mm -hmm. that helped encourage me to keep going, to mm -hmm. remind me that I was loved. That I had built enough strength, inner strength, and built enough trust in the world and the universe and what I call my God. And that I could tell my therapist that I wasn't doing well. And even she was like, why didn't you say anything? Part of it was denial. Part of it was, I don't think I knew how bad it was. Um, part of it was I just didn't want to have to face it. I didn't want to have to do the work. Yeah, I was just going <laughs> to say sometimes I don't say anything because I'm afraid they're going to make me yeah. do something that requires effort. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, she offered me inpatient treatment. It was at that point where I needed to be hospitalized. And... Because of the fact that I am a single mom and I do have a daughter that still lives with me at home because she has some special needs, she relies on me. And the fact that I'm probably a workaholic, <laughs> <laughs> um, I chose not to be hospitalized and to do the work myself at home. And I'm really glad I did. Me too. Yeah. Me too. I'm really glad I did. Yeah, yeah. Liz popped back into the meeting about a week or two after the one where you revealed how depressed you were. And um, it was, you were smiling mm -hmm. and it was, it was really nice. Yeah. It was really nice. I had like my first belly laugh a, a couple yeah. of weeks ago and I was like, my stomach muscles hurt so bad right. because it had been so long since I've laughed that hard. I'm so grateful that I get to have these moments that I do get to experience joy, you know. And I, I hope I straddled the the line when I texted you mm. after the meeting where you talked yeah. about your depression because I, I, I didn't want to feel you to feel like I was encroaching on your space, but I also, you know, wanted you to know that. If you want to talk. Yeah. Um, and I did need that from you. I did. And I did need to talk and to hang out. But I was so sick. I was so sick. I couldn't. Dialing a phone number was overwhelming. It was like. Sometimes I didn't even know what I needed. It was just, I would sit on the couch and just count the minutes, praying that it would get better. And I just couldn't. I wanted to. There were so many, there were probably people I could have called and say, I'm alone. Can you please come and just sit with me? I did have people offer, let me know if you want to go for a walk. I just couldn't do it. Like, I was so anxious and so depressed. Stepping foot outside my house was overwhelming. Yeah. And and just making eye contact with people feels like bench pressing 500 pounds. Yeah. I couldn't have anyone need anything from me. Mm. So having to think about engaging in a conversation where someone's going to require me to answer a question or to give advice or 
that I might have to be attentive to someone or be responsible for someone in my house or be mm-hmm. a good host or just anything, I I couldn't do it. If somebody had said to you, somebody that you felt safe with had said to you, what if I come by and you just lay, I put a pillow in my lap and you lay your head down and we'll just sit in silence. I would have loved that. I didn't have that. For the person who's never experienced depression, um, they probably can't even conceive that that would be yeah. a doable. Yeah. Yeah. To have someone. Sorry, I'm wiping away tears. That's all right. <laughs> to have someone just offer to just sit on the couch and maybe hold my hand. Um, would have been so amazing to just feel for a few minutes less alone and safe and to feel someone else's presence there with me. Um, I spent a lot of nights... I would color in coloring books sometimes. Um, I would try to watch like funny videos, like funny cat videos on YouTube, you know, um, anything I could to try and lift my spirits or get out of my head. Those have probably saved hundreds of thousands of lives. Yeah, over, for sure contributed to saving mine. Thank you, YouTube cat videos. Keep them coming. My therapist gave me a list of things she would say to me. To help engage, like I needed to engage, to activate, right? Instead of just sitting there in the mud. Oh, it's so fucking hard. To activate. And so it was actually really cool because the list she gave me normally, it's like, go for a walk or go. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, screw you. I don't want to go for a walk right now. I want to stay in my house. So it was like things like um, get a small table fan and put it in front of you and just feel the breeze blowing on your face. Things like that were calming to me because I could feel air. Open the curtains and look out the window and just look out the window. Um, oh, those sound doable. Yeah, right? Um, make a cup of tea. You know, any little thing that kind of keeps you active in the world, but also is not overwhelming at the same time. So kind of takes you out of your head. Yes. Helps you be present a yes. little bit without feeling like you're doing some type of exercise. Yeah. And then I slowly expanded on that list and I started polishing my own nails. Um, I wanted to take a bath, but I also was afraid of the bath because of the whole suicide thing. Mm. I think that I was, again, afraid of the overwhelming urge, right? Um, so there wasn't a whole lot of bathing going on. Mm-hmm. Um, petting my cat. Oh, animals are yeah. the best. Playing with my dog, throwing my dog's toy, playing fetch with my dog. Anything that would bring me just a little bit of pleasure, activate me, get me out of my head, get me present, those things are literally the things that help me stay alive during the day. That's what I would turn to. I would have just told you to smile harder and pray. (laughs) Smiling. I probably would have rolled my eyes and flipped you off. (laughs) Well, Liz, I am so happy to be your your friend and, you know, walk this uh, crazy walk of of ours and to um, just have our lives intersect and open up to each other. Um, we're, I feel like we're really blessed in the city that we live, that we have such a nice group of uh, people to support each other. And oh, yeah. you're, you're one of those people for me. Yeah, same here. I, I think it's incredible that when I was able to start finally voicing some of my needs, you know, it was someone else in, in the rooms at the time, she had asked me if there was anything she could do. And I just said, if you come across any good memes or quotes or anything, just text them to me. That was all I was able to do as far as communicating. Mm-hmm. 
every single day. I got a text message every single day, whether it was something inspirational or spiritual or funny. And that's because of these programs, these, you know, Mm -hmm. these groups that we all go to that I was able to find a community who can show up for me in ways that I had wanted my family to show up for me. That's what I get from you. That's what I get. Even though I wasn't able to call you back, I knew that you were just a phone call away. I knew that you were there for me. I knew because when we were in meetings, you would try to get me to share. You would try to get me to engage. So even if I wasn't able to talk to you physically, I felt your presence and I held onto that. And I kept that with me too, knowing that I have this support group around me, that there were people that loved me and cared about me. Well, I look forward to meeting the next douchebag you get engaged to. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Oh, no. See, I can't just let it end on a sweet no. moment. I got to come with my fucking snowshoes and, and sp- <laughs> fucking step on step on everything. Hopefully I won't have to ask you to, you yes. know, protect me if I have to get a restraining order against somebody. Liz, you fucking rock. And uh, I will see you Wednesday night. I will see you Wednesday night. Thank you. Many, many thanks to Liz. You know, it's it, it is amazing how easy it is despite having so much recovery to not reach out for help when we need it ah so glad she she came out the other side uh this will be the final episode of december we're going to run best of episodes for uh, for the rest of the month um getting shoulder surgery on the 21st wish me luck and um i will see you guys uh in in the new year and in the meantime be nice to yourself and uh never forget that you're not alone and thanks for listening everybody i know is bizarrely beautiful everybody i know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way